0: Good morning. Well, I did want to point out if you guys haven't given the grams a hug, make sure you do. I see one of them over there and they're over there. Scott and Megan. Welcome from South Africa and other points on the compass that you've been. Great to have you guys here. Um, And speaking of just international Middle East, uh, that kind of stuff. um, Anybody watching the World Cup? Please don't tell me the score of the final. You guys, watch watching the World Cup. Um, Carrie and I have really enjoyed watching the men's World Cup that's taking place in Qatar over the past several weeks. And today is the championship game between Argentina and France. And throughout the tournament, um, and mainly because it takes place like in the mornings, because it's halfway across the world, it's the morning here. We don't aren't able to watch the matches until later in the afternoon or the evening. Um, as as a recording, because they've already been played for the day. And we live in an age now where you can record live sports events and watch them later. But there's always a problem with that, isn't there? There's, the, there's, the, there's always the danger of seeing the score before you watch the game, right? So you have to kind of shut all your news off and your uh, different things like that. Uh, but there was a week, a couple weeks ago, when the U.S. team had two games... And the Australian team had a game. So so these are my two teams, because I am Australian, and I live in the United States. I'm a citizen of the United States. And all three of those games, during that week, somebody gave it away before I was able to watch the game. Three times in one week. And I was pulling my hair out, if you could believe it. (laughs) No. I'm just with (laughs) this Yeah. So three different people uh, did in the, unwittingly. They didn't mean to. They apologized afterwards. It's that whole kind of thing. But more than anything, it was just kind of comical. But I, I found that as I watched the match, I still watched them, I watched the matches differently because I knew the outcome. First of all, they weren't as stressful, right? Because... <laughs> You get to the end and it's tied. You're like, who's going to score? The you know, if they're ahead, are they going to score? You kind of know. Well, I know there's a goal coming up at some point here. They were still exciting, but they weren't as stressful. And I discovered as well that it actually it actually affected both my hopes and my fears in relation to how the match turned out, which is the theme of of Advent this year, the hopes and fears of all the years. It actually alleviated both of those. Because I knew how the story was going to end, and which is, I'll change the subject just slightly, this is actually kind of how we approach the Bible, especially if we're familiar with it, right? We know the story of the Bible, maybe if you grew up in Sunday school or reading the Bible, you know, you know all the different stories, you know how things turn out, um, and you can still read the stories and be affected by them. You can still learn about god and and ourselves and our relationship to him through the stories. but just like it 's difficult to read a favorite book a second time in the same way as it was when you read it the first time, right or watch it 's a wonderful life and know exactly what's going to happen you know he's not going to jump off the bridge or he's not going to die or kill himself you know you know the sorry if I gave it away by the way if you haven't watched it's a wonderful life but it's payback I guess um, you you watch it you you watch a beloved movie for the third or fourth time and you're not surprised anymore you know how things are going to go out and that changes how you experience the movie well as we read through the scriptures the same kind of thing happens because we know what's going to happen but But as we look at the scripture, I think we have to come at it understanding or trying to read it again for the first time to be surprised with the hopes and fears that God wants us to carry as we read through his story. And so as we read a story, a difficult story like that of King David, we should somewhat be surprised at the outcome. We should be shocked at the conflict in the story, It's difficult to read it and be affected by both fear and hope that it's meant to elicit in us. And so as we read this story today, as I tell you this story, I'd I'd like you to try to forget the story for a minute and act like you've never heard it before. What What will that do to you? We have been walking through looking at five different couples that lead us up to Christ, from Adam and Eve to Abraham and Sarah to Boaz and Ruth and this week, to David and Bathsheba, as God works his plan of bringing the Messiah to us. So around 1000 BC, the seventh son of a man named Jesse from the tiny town of Bethlehem in Judah was a boy named David. And David, we meet him first, he's a young shepherd who's unexpectedly anointed to be the king of Israel when there was already a king of Israel, King Saul. But this man, David, this young man, David, was anointed to replace him as the king because Saul had been rejected by God. And as a youth, David shows his character, his faith, his ability through his famous encounter, remember, with the Philistine giant, the Philistine giant Goliath goes out to battle with him and kills him with one stone from a sling. Then he proceeds to make a name for himself as Saul's most successful general and military leader, eventually military hero. And during that time, he becomes close friends with one of Saul's sons named Jonathan. And he wins the hand of one of Saul's daughters named Michael. And he becomes part of the family. However, because David... Rises meteorically and has unprecedented success militarily. Saul becomes murderously jealous of David and declares him to be public enemy number one. And you can just imagine most wanted posters, right? Scattered all throughout Israel with David's face on them as Saul tries to hunt David down and kill him time and time again for years. Eventually, David has to flee out of the country and go to the country of the Philistines and take refuge there with one of the kings. Now, twice during this time, while Saul is pursuing David, David is given the opportunity to actually kill Saul, or at least take him prisoner. Twice, his men urge him, put a spear through him, kill him, end it right now, and David refuses to do so out of fear of the Lord. Over and over again, David shows his character. He shows his trust in Yahweh, which is opposed to Saul's hard, sinful rebellion against Yahweh. And at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, that's all in in 1 Samuel, by the way. At the end of the book of 1 Samuel, Saul and, and three of his sons are killed in battle against the Philistines. And 2 Samuel opens up with David hearing of their deaths and grieving over their deaths. And then subsequently, the tribe of Judah, which was David's own tribe, crowns him king. And he rules as king of Judah for seven and a half years. And then after that seven and a half years, all of Israel recognizes him as king. And he takes that opportunity to claim Jerusalem as his capital city and establish it as his capital. He even brings the ark of God to Jerusalem to dwell there. And so now there's this city where, where the king dwells, the, the human king dwells, and also the heavenly king dwells here in Jer- Jerusalem as, as God is establishing his kingdom and he's establishing his kingdom. And then comes one of the most important chapters in Scripture. And you can turn, if you're not there already, to 2 Samuel. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God sends the prophet Nathan to communicate to David a covenant promise. And then here's what God says this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting the last part of verse 8. God says to David through Nathan, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep. That you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name. Like the names of the great ones of the earth. Now the end of verse 12. He continues. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. And God is referring to Solomon there. He shall build a house, a temple for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And then verse 16. And your house, David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And it's this chapter, these verses, from which we get the messianic hopes of the scripture the hope that there will be a king, an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, who would one day come from the line of David and rule not just for a time, but who would rule forever, that his throne will be forever. So when we read 2 Samuel 7, we should be thinking forward to a perfect king who will come and who will reign. Now, immediately after receiving this promise from God, of an eternal kingdom and a great name, David goes to work establishing his kingdom with his sword. He defeats the Philistines. He defeats the Moabites. He defeats the Ammonites. He defeats the Syrians. He defeats the Edomites. And if you know the geography, basically he has, is defeating everyone that surrounds Israel and putting them under Israelite rule, or under the Israelite thumb, if you will. And it's, really, it's actually really good geopolitics on a small scale. He is, he is building a defense around Israel, so they were hard to penetrate. And here's what it says in chapter 8, verse 13. It says that David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites. In the valley of salt, in verse 14, Yahweh gave victory to David wherever he went. And this is an interesting couple of verses, because you can read it in one of two ways. The first way to read it would be to read it as the complement of divine sovereignty and human achievement. So Yahweh gave victory to David. And David made a name for himself. And those two things work together. That when God does something, he partners with us to do it. And that's surely biblical. But, but God had just told David in verse 7. I think, this is, I think this is the right way to read this. God had just told David in, in chapter 7 that he would make a name for David. I will make a name for you. And why does the narrator tell us then in chapter 8 that David made a name for himself. Is it perhaps foreshadowing, a note of foreboding, a little subtle hint of pride and self-importance that we're supposed to take note of here in these verses that is arising in David as he becomes a great man? Now, 2 Samuel 10 tells the story of David's decisive defeat of the Ammonites and the Syrians, these two great countries, which just cements military control for himself over all these surrounding nations. And At this point, David's transformation from shepherd, humble shepherd out in the field, the seventh son of Jesse, to a, to a warrior, a valiant, strong, famous warrior, now to a monarch the sole monarch of a dominant regional power. This transformation is complete. And in 2 Samuel 10, David is at the pinnacle of his power. Famous not only in Israel, but in all of the surrounding nations. And we know that God's hand is behind all of this success. That's what the narrative tells us, that God's hand, Yahweh, is behind this. But there are at least hints in the story, that David is beginning to believe his own press. He's beginning to believe that he's a pretty big deal. Which brings us to 2 Samuel 11, which opens like this. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So this chapter immediately starts out on the wrong foot. David, basically resting on his laurels at the pinnacle of his power, has intentionally placed himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. At the time, we're told, when kings go out to battle, where was David? He was not where he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be at the head of his army, but he was in Jerusalem at home. The, the text is clear that he sent every able-bodied man to war, but he stays home and trouble ensues. Now, have you ever been in the wrong place at the wrong time? Okay, <laughs> everybody knows what this is about, right? Right? that car accident you got in or the bad choice you made. Sometimes this happens through no fault of your own, right? Like you're, you're the person who let the the lady go in front of you in the grocery line. She's only got one thing, you, so you're polite. You let her go, and then she's like the millionth shopper and wins $10,000. Like that moment, you're like, oh, really? You know, wrong place, wrong time. But other times we choose to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and we find ourselves in trouble that could be avoided if we'd only made a different choice. If we hadn't chosen to go to that party or to go to that bar or be alone with that that woman or that man who we weren't married to. We chose our troubles with a questionable decision, which leads to another decision and another decision. And eventually we become trapped in in a tragedy, a spiral of our own sinful choosing. So the story continues... Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So at a time when David's soldiers were fighting and dying on his behalf, David is playing video games. He's on his couch. No, he's, He's taking an afternoon nap. He's enjoying a life of comfort and luxury. And and I think it's true that when we have everything we want, it's often easier to feel entitled to more. And I'm not saying when we have everything we need. When we have everything we want, it feels entitled to more. And the crazy thing is that when we have everything we need and want, we always feel like we need more. Our wants continue to grow. And so here's what happens in verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now here's where the tension in the story should be at its peak. This is like the conflict in this story that should be sending alarm bells off in us. What is David going to do? Because he was just told this is another man's wife. Should be end of story, end of game, turn the computer off, hang up the phone, walk out of the room, walk out of the bar, whatever. Make the right choice. Isn't this the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And instead of saying no, David went back to his couch. It says, so David sent messengers. Is it's interesting that it says so there. It's like therefore, because he found out who it was, therefore he sent for her. What was going through his mind? Where's Uriah? Well, he's at the battle. He's not home. So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now, it's quite possible that Bathsheba was a willing and ready accomplice to David's lustful intentions. However, as a subject of the king, she was virtually powerless to resist. We don't know what the conversation was or how that played out, but the language actually implies that David used force here. He sent messengers, and it says he took her. The word take there can also mean to seize something, to grasp something, to steal something. It's the same verb that's used in Genesis 3 when the woman, Eve, reaches out and takes of the tree of the knowledge and good of good and evil, so not content with what he had, numerous wives, probably concubines already, he reached out, perhaps by force, took this woman, another man 's wife, for himself, and because he was the king, David believed he could get away with it, but Unfortunately, verse four happens, It says now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, which is another is the reason she was taking a bath, which also gives us a heads up that she was not pregnant before this. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, sin always has consequences. No matter what, sin always has consequences. It's like a virus that wants to multiply and overcome its host. It wants to catch us in a lethal spiral of death. And like a virus, it often does this by hiding, by mimicking other things and covering itself in darkness so as not to be found out. And David does not want to be found out. So immediately after he gets this news, he quickly and decisively sends for Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, to return from battle and come back to Jerusalem. And he hopes that Uriah will go home, do the reasonable thing and sleep with his wife, and the entire escapade will be covered up and no eyebrows will be raised when a child is born nine months later. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Uriah the Hittite. He was not an Israelite. He was a Hittite. But at some point, he had come into David's employ as a kind of a foreign mercenary, a foreign warrior, and he'd become part of David's army and actually had risen in the ranks of David's army to become one of David's famous mighty men who were great warriors who would gained reputations for themselves because of their bravery and because of their skill in combat. And if you go back and read the lists of David's mighty men, you'll also see that Bathsheba's father was also one of David's mighty men. So we're not just talking about a no-name family here. These are like knights of the round table, right? We're not talking about peasants in Jerusalem. These are, these are well-to-do families. We're, we're talking about a close military companion as well, a brother in arms, with whom, with, between David and Uriah, there was some sort of bond and loyalty and brotherhood due to a history of shared adversity and close combat arm in arm. So Uriah the Hittite, David's friend and loyal servant, returns to Jerusalem, gives the king a battle briefing, and then is sent home by David to be with his wife. But Uriah doesn't go home. He basically heads down to the barracks and spends the night in the, in the castle. The next day when, when David asked him what he was thinking, like, why didn't you go home to your wife? He tells David that he's still on duty. Can't do that, I'm on duty. Verse 11, he says this, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house... To eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Why in the world would I stay in Jerusalem and take a nap on my couch? I'm a warrior. I'm supposed to be at the battle. And these words actually, whether Uriah intended it or not, these words are a rebuke to David for doing that very thing while all his men are off fighting his battle. And it's with these words that Uriah the Hittite actually shows himself to be more righteous and more noble than the great, God-hearted King David. See, David, in pride, in his pride, felt entitled to enjoy Uriah's wife. While Uriah, in humble service to David, didn't even feel entitled to enjoy his own wife. Tragically, though, that nobility, Uriah's very nobility, would be his downfall. It would actually cost him his life. So after another unsuccessful attempt to get him home by getting him drunk this time and then sending him home, still won't do it, David sends Uriah back to the battle carrying his own death warrant where he's placed in the heart on the front line of the battle and he falls and is killed. And upon hearing that news, David breathes a huge sigh of relief, allows for a little bit of time for grieving, and then sends for Bathsheba to make her his wife. And then at the end of 2 Samuel 11, verse 27, we have these words, this foreboding note. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. This is a major crisis. In the story, in the whole story, in all of the biblical story. This is a major crisis because up to this point, building up and watching David's rise, we've seen a man after God's own heart. And we should be asking ourselves, could this possibly be the serpent crusher? Could David be the one, the promised one, who is going to come, a descendant of Eve who would conquer and restore the world to the way it's supposed to be? Could this be him? It sure looks like it. But now, after chapter 11, this man looks more like a descendant of the serpent. Is David just another Saul? Saul? Is he just another entitled bully who will use his power to get whatever he wants, no matter what it costs or who it hurts? Are we, too, to be eternally caught up in this deadly spiral of sin, which, to which James refers in the New Testament book of James? He writes this, but each person is tempted When he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. I can't think of any other way to summarize this story than that. Started with temptation, ends with the death of an innocent man. As Paul so eloquently asked in Romans chapter 7, Who will deliver me from this body of death? At this point, David thinks he's in the clear. He's got everything. He's got the woman. Everything seems to be clear. Nobody knows. But God's not done with him yet. And he sends him the prophet Nathan again, and this time to tell David a story. And here's the story he tells, 2 Samuel 12, starting at verse 1. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man... But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, the, the parable is a short, compelling story of injustice. And we read it and we, re, we recognize instantly, well, he's telling David's story here. Without missing a beat, though, David responds in a rage. And you can, you can just imagine David jumping up from his throne, with his face red, just beat red, just yelling at David, as Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. I mean, you could just imagine irate David saying that to Nathan's face, just clueless about his own guilt. He's able to easily spot another man's injustice and lack of pity. But he condemns, in in those very words, he condemns his own merciless action towards Uriah and towards Uriah's wife. Actions which were much more deserving of death than the theft of a poor man's lamb. So Nathan prophetically, courageously responds in a classic and powerful way looking at David, the king, and saying these few words, You are the man. And at the core of his confrontation with David, prior to laying out the consequences of David's sin, Nathan asks a crucial question, a crucial question which has haunted humanity since Genesis chapter 3. In verse 9 he asks this, Why have you despised the word of Yahweh? To do what is evil in his sight. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? This is the moment of truth. David's been called on the carpet, and what will he do? So we have another crisis here. The first crisis was that moment where he should have decided not to go after the woman. Here's another crisis. How will David respond? What will David do? Will he become defensive? Will he seek to justify himself? Will he start pointing fingers of blame like Adam did in the garden? Well, it was the woman's fault. She was taking a bath on the roof. It was your fault, God. You put her there. Will he seek to silence Nathan through another act of injustice or violence? Because these are all the things, brothers and sisters, these are all the things that we do when we're confronted with our sin. We justify, we defend, we hide, we blame. But here's what David does, verse 13. David said to Nathan, at this point I imagine he's fallen on his knees, I have sinned against Yahweh. You see, the death spiral of sinful choices has to end somewhere. And it can end with death and judgment, as James pointed out. Or it can end with confession and repentance. We have one of two choices. Death and judgment, confession and repentance. We have no other options, and as difficult as it must have been, David chose wisely. Psalm 51, which Elise read for us earlier, is the poetic evidence of David's true and heartfelt repentance in this moment. God has mercy on him. He forgives him. He puts his sin away. He doesn't hold his sin against him. But even in that, that doesn't eliminate the consequences of his sin. And like the initial sin, the consequences of David's sin is actually carried by another. Uriah was the one who bore the weight of death. And the child now, who should have been Uriah's son, is also made to bear the same weight. Verse 13. Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. It's not a happy ending. And King David, in this story leading up to here, King David was the best that Israel had to offer. So this story offers as a reality check that even the best of us can become the proudest of us. And as disturbing as this story is, it carries with it, though, a bounty of hope. Because it's always a miracle. It is always a miracle when a proud person repents. It's always a miracle when a powerful person finds humility. And the warning for us in this story to chew on, to meditate on in this Advent season is this. That pride leads us to take things, to grasp things for ourselves, to seize things for ourselves. And humility leads us to receive God's gifts. It's a huge difference between grabbing and receiving. There's a huge difference between pride and humility. And at Christmas, the interesting thing is that we often pride ourselves on our generosity. Don't we? And the good gifts that we can give. I mean, generosity is good, don't get me wrong, but when it becomes our focus, when our generosity becomes our focus... We're at risk of forgetting that Christmas is actually all about receiving. When we hear that, we think, well, that sounds selfish. That sounds really selfish. I shouldn't be just the guy that wants to get gifts all the time. We should be givers, right? We should be generous. We shouldn't be consumeristic. But if we fail to receive, if we fail to receive, we can never truly succeed at giving, We have to give from a place of receiving, from a place of humility. And the point of the incarnation, the point of God becoming flesh, the point of Advent, the point of Christmas, is that when we come to worship Christ, who is God in the flesh, a baby, we recognize that every gift we bring, every gift we bring to the manger, to Christ, every gift we bring is worthless in the light of the gift of, who has been given to us. And in the end, even though David grasped for another man's wife, it would be through that same woman, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, in God's mysterious grace, that David himself would receive, at least in part, the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So look at chapter 12, verse 24. After that child dies, David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, this time lawfully. He's married to her now. And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And Yahweh, I love this, Yahweh loved him. Yahweh loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because... Now, it isn't hard to imagine that perhaps the message that God sent through Nathan sounded something like this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The same words God the Father spoke over another son, another king, who would be born in the lineage of David through the line of Solomon and who would be called Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who will bring us peace by restoring us to peace with God, by breaking our bones and yet restoring them and bringing us joy. What great hope there is that God keeps his promises he loves us deeply, even in our most rebellious moments. So today, can I call us to humbly receive the gift that God has given us in Jesus and to worship our true King. Will you pray with me? Let's pray this morning from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out our transgressions. Wash us thoroughly from our iniquities and cleanse us from our sin. For we know our transgressions and our sin is ever before us. Against you, you only, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words. Blameless in your judgment, behold, we were brought forth in iniquity, and sin did our mothers conceive us. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach us wisdom in the secret heart. Purge us with hyssop, and we shall be clean. Wash us, and we shall be whiter than snow. Let us hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken. Rejoice. Lord, hide your face from our sins and blot out all of our iniquities. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew right spirits within us. Do not cast us away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Then we will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Amen.